We are continuing in our look at Luke 12. Now, I have to tell you, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not the greatest of planners per se. So when I think through what are we going to be looking at, at what month, and, and all that, I don't really have a whole lot to do with that. If it ever aligns, it's always because of the Holy Spirit. I find it fascinating uh, that we are going through Luke 12, which I think has to really be one of the toughest chapters in all of the Gospels when it comes to Jesus. I, I've said this before. If you feel like there are people around you who think, oh, well, you know what? Uh, we love Jesus, but we just don't like the church. We just don't like Christians, but we really like Jesus a lot. He's just so great. I would tell you to go to Luke 12. And then see how much do you still just think, oh, wow, Jesus, yeah. Or how much do you have to actually deal with who Jesus really is? So I think it's fascinating that in the month of July, which is uh, almost always our least attended month of the year, this is when the Spirit has us going through Luke 12. Um, so I may bring this back in like December, um, but this is, it's challenging. And almost every uh, week here, as we've looked at Luke 12, I've had to just kind of give voice to it. These are, are hard parts. But again, if we don't want to just believe in this kind of caricature of Jesus or who we have shaped him to be because it's easier for us, um, then it's important that we look at all of the gospel and we look at who Jesus truly is. And so with that, we are going to look at Luke 12, chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Jesus is continuing to speak here to the crowds and to the disciples. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those Slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces. I warned you. And put him with the unfaithful. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. Sisters and brothers in Christ, 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we hear your word this morning. Sometimes your word comforts us. It gives us a sense of peace. At other times, Lord, your word cuts us. It forces us to awaken and to hear. So I pray that this morning, Lord, that you will help us to be comforted and to be cut. To be given rest and to awake. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, clearly, uh, the theme of this passage is about the return of Jesus. Jesus describes his return in a couple different ways. Uh, he describes it as being like a, a, a master who uh, returns from a wedding feast, a banquet, uh, to, uh, to likely to his bedroom. And there, there are slaves who are prepared. They've been readying for the master's return. The other image that he gives, of course, is also of the master who's trying to decide the manager, who is going to kind of run uh, his household, if you will. And so this is the sense of whether or not that manager will really be ready and be prepared whenever the master returns to his household. Uh, we talk about the return of Jesus from time to time, but we mention it almost every single week. We mention it uh, at my blessing that I give at the very end of the service, right? I mean, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you, be with all of you uh, until Jesus returns, something like that, right? And I realize that, because I say it at the very end, um, some of us may be distracted, we may not hear it, right? Some of us are like, oh, thank God, this is finally over. Others of us are like, man, I hope there's still some jelly donuts. I mean, there's all of these different thoughts. I get that. But I say it every week anyways because I think it is absolutely critical. It is a lens through which we should understand the world and which we should understand the week to come. Jason Chappell and I were talking about this particular passage earlier in the week, and he said, you know, it's almost like an Advent passage. And I, I think he's right. You know, we talk a lot about, about Christmas in July. Well, today we have Advent in July. And when it comes to Advent, what do we talk about? We talk about two things, right? Uh, on the one hand, we talk about the return of Jesus. And this is really significant. That's obviously what this passage is really talking about, the return of Jesus. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, this return, even as the judge, should actually give us great hope and great Joy, Because this is the time when finally the oppressed will be given justice. This is the time when death and disease and destruction will be no more. This is the time when there will be no more hunger, no more war, no more division. This is the time when beauty and grace and love will begin to flourish even more. And so we need this image of hope. Because otherwise, what happens is that we become cynical. 
because we feel like the world around us has none of those things and we begin to think, oh man, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing good. Nothing ever good is going to happen. And Jesus describes this return with all of these things, right? With no more war, no more destruction, no more poverty, no more hunger, uh, where there is love flourishing, all of these things. And we think that's what we want to hold on to. This is what gives us hope. This is what we are waiting for. At the same time in Advent, what we talk about is this reality. We see this in the Gospels, is that Jesus has come. So the kingdom is both not here yet, but it's also already here. And this is what we believe we see. We see the inbreaking of the kingdom. Every time that Jesus, as we've already seen many times, whenever he's healing the sick or the brokenhearted, whenever it is that he's listening to those who are mourning, whenever he feeds the hungry, whenever he allows those who have been possessed by evil to be free, every single time that happens, what we believe is that is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the present. What this helps us to begin to see is that we don't just sit there and just wait, but that we actually have something to do right now. This is what Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. Uh, Tim Keller says it's a bit like time traveling. He says it's not that we travel to the future, but says that when we begin to follow Jesus, what's happening is that the future actually comes into us. And that a part of our call then is to begin to live out the kingdom. A part of the call of the church by our own ways in which we bring grace and love and healing. What that is doing is it is also breaking in and giving us glimpses into the kingdom today. That is a part of the call of the church. Our book of order says that the church is the provisional demonstration of God's intention for humanity. In other words, what the church is supposed to be doing, what you and I are supposed to be doing, is giving others a glimpse of what it will look like when Jesus finally returns. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage. This is why we have things to do. This is a part of what it means for us to light those lamps. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts this. I've shared this before, but I want us to hear this again. Here's what he says. He says, every act of love Gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And, of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Now, that, I want you to hear why this is so important. A lot of times when we are followers of Jesus, uh, I fall into this trap. I think many of us do. We think, okay, now we have to be good people. So we have to, we make it kind of a moral kind of thing only. Okay, now I need to go love my neighbor, you know, because I'm supposed to do it. And oftentimes it's kind of done both out of guilt and it's done in a very individualistic way. And we have no idea that this is not just about what's happening right now. The way it's described, one image I think is super helpful is that it's like this cathedral, right? 
where you have this great cathedral and you have the architect who is God and God has all of these great plans and then he gives each of us particular things to do, right? So to the stonemason, that person's working on stone, as far as I can tell. Uh, The carpenter, right? What's the carpenter doing? He's working with wood, right? He or she, they're there in their woodshed, and they're, they're, maybe they're making pews, let's just say, right? And the stonemason maybe is making a, a gargoyle. I don't know if this cathedral is a gargoyle. Let's just say it does. It's helpful for rain. You know, they spit it out. It gets like gutters, right? Uh, you, have the, you have the tile person, right? And, and he or she's making the tile, right? And what they do then is they, they, they then bring this back to the architect. They bring it back to the architect. They don't know exactly how it's all going to work or what it's going to look like, but they bring it back, right? And then the architect puts it all together. You see, every Every single act that we do is a part of this much larger plan, right? Here's the example I gave a few years ago that's very helpful for me. It's like the Sagrada Familia. And and interestingly enough, just a few, uh, a a couple of you have been there just in the last couple of weeks. I've talked to you about this. It's in Barcelona. It's this beautiful cathedral, right? It it started by Gaudi, right? You can see it. There it is from the outside. Sometimes it looks a little bit like the Cheesecake Factory to me. But overall, I think it's really nice. And it has this light, right? All of this incredible light uh, that you can see in the interior. Um, look at that. Isn't that amazing? It is absolutely majestic, right? I have never seen a cathedral like this. I love it, right? It is incredible. And, 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 and Gaudi, um, 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 he really wanted these things to be lifelike, right? So he has this nativity facade. You can see it here. Um, um, but you can see like the oxen and the donkey. And here's the thing. He wanted, he wanted the animals to be incredibly lifelike. So what he did was he would get an animal and he would put plaster around the animal, right? A live animal. And and then he would break the plaster and let the animal free. No animals have been harmed in the making of the Sagrada Familia. But he wanted it so that it would be lifelike, right? And I was listening to this art historian talk about this. And he was talking about the goose that's in this. I think it's in the Nativity one. And I just started, you know, I just started wandering, thinking about that. Think about the person who had to catch the goose to put in the plaster, right? So there is the goose, and, and he's running, and, you know, the, he's, just, he's just trying to chase it, and you know what his feet are stepping in, and he's just trying to get these geese, right? And so there it is, and all these droppings, and he finally gets it, and it's like this, and it's flapping its wings, and it's, he's like trying to think it's a gouting. You know he's thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the worst. And he's thinking to himself, he probably isn't. We would have been thinking this in this day and age. Oh, my goodness, I had such great plans for my life, and this is what I'm doing. But imagine if now this has been making, been being made for like 135 years or so. Imagine now if that person who caught that goose could come back. And all of a sudden, he sees what the Sagrada Familia looks like. And as he gets closer, he goes and he looks and he sees that goose facade. And he knows Amazingly enough, this thing he did, how it is a part of this amazing cathedral today, this beautiful cathedral. You see, what we believe is this, that every time we do small acts, when they are done out of love to God, every time you change a diaper in the nursery or your own child's diaper and you're doing this as this act of love, every time that you sing a song, every time that you pray, every time that you go out and you serve and you love a neighbor, you may think nobody ever sees this. What does it matter? But we believe as followers of Jesus that someday we will be able to look and see this beautiful cathedral, the beautiful kingdom of God, and we will be able to see we had a part in that. 
This is what it means to participate in the coming kingdom of God. This is what it means for the future to break in even now. So Jesus is saying, keep those lamps lit. Keep working. These are incredibly important parts that you are doing. Now, I want to focus for just a moment on this first parable that Jesus gives because I also think this is really important for us to remember. What Jesus says, this is remarkable. He says that, well, let's go to what Ken Bailey says. Ken Bailey says that for the wedding feast, here's what would have happened, that those servants that, to which Jesus is talking, they were the ones who were back in the bedroom. What that means is that likely they were the lowest caste of servants. Because if you were a higher up servant or a slave, you would be at the actual wedding. You would be right there where the guests are. You would be making sure that everything was taken care of. So these particular servants, they are the lowest of the low. And as I thought about that, I remembered my job after, the, after my first year at college when I worked at Perdido Beach Resort down in Orange Beach, Alabama, and I was a banquet steward. It sounds impressive, does it not? But what it meant was that they would have all these conferences and things there. I'm, I'm hopeful as I say this, next time you go to one of your conferences, you'll think about the banquet steward. And, and what they would do is they would get there two or three hours before the meal. So if it was a breakfast, we'd have to get there at like 4.30 or 5 in the morning, right? And we would begin to count. You ever thought, have you ever wondered when you went into one of those big things, I wonder how this fork got here, right here. We would count two or 300 forks and spoons and knives, and charger plates, and regular plates, and salad plates, and drink glasses, and dessert plates, and a dessert fork, all of those things. We would count all of those out. And then the servers, they would come and they would grab all of those things, and then they would take them out to the tables, and they would set everything up. And then once the meal was over, it was the banquet stewards who would sit back and the servers would come out and they'd put it on this long table and then we dealt with all of the slop, right? We'd take it and we'd kind of empty it all out, scrape everything, get it all ready for the dishwasher, right? This was our job, right? It was this kind of grimy job. But what I most remember about this job is this, that we as banquet stewards were told we can never go into the dining area where the guests were. You see, the servers could go out there with the guests, but we could not. We were unclean and were to be unseen. This is true. And so, as he was, Jesus was describing this, and as Ken Bailey describes, like, I know what that means. I mean, if the chef or the manager of the hotel had come down and had girded his loins. That's what it actually says here, which just means throwing on an apron or, or it means kind of you're, you're putting it into your belt so that you can get to work, so that you can move. If they had come and done that and said, you banquet stewards, you unclean and unseen, you sit there at the table and we are going to bring you all of the plates, all of the silverware, and we're going to make a, make a meal, not just the leftovers, you know, the scraps that you would eat. Like, I don't think those fries have been touched. You know, uh, not that I ever did that. But these were fries that were actually made for me, right? All of these things, the food and drink, it was really for me. And then he or she, they just sat there and just served us. Our minds would have been blown. It never happened. 
And see, this is the kind of master, this is who Jesus is, right? And we'll see this, of course, I think it's in John when you have uh, Jesus uh, washing the feet of the disciples, right? But here already we see kind of a foreshadowing of that as this is the kind of, it's not just a kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom, right? Where it is that Jesus comes and serves us as he returns, then he serves us. This is the kind of remarkable, incredibly loving God that we serve. It is this incredible, powerful image that Jesus is trying to help them to see. Now that gets us to about verse 40. But I read through 48. I said this a couple weeks ago that the lectionary, you know, which is oftentimes kind of an assigned reading that many churches do, uh, that kind of basically gets you through Scripture in about three years. And, but there's always these kind of uh, parts of the Scripture that are omitted. And it seems most times, as N.T. Wright says, that those are passages about judgment. It may not surprise you to know verses 41 through 48 just happen to not be there. And I don't wholly misunderstand why they would have omitted this particular section. And yet, again, like I said, if we don't want an overly sentimental Jesus, if we don't want someone who is just kind of this caricature, if we actually, as followers of Jesus, it seems like this should be important, want to understand Jesus as he genuinely is, then we have to pay attention to all of Jesus. 41 through 48, again, it talks about those. Hey, if you've done a good job of being prepared, well done. Good work. You've been participating in acts of love and kindness and justice and mercy. You're clearly preparing for the kingdom to come in full bore. This is a beautiful thing. But then in this section, Jesus also directs it toward those who have not been prepared. There's a decent chance that even more so what Jesus is talking to or who Jesus is talking to are the leaders in the church. Peter asks, is this more for the disciples? And Jesus doesn't really out and out say it, but then later on he goes and he says, look, for those who, you know, who receive much, right, much will be demanded. And of course here, Jesus says... That for those who are not prepared, that we will cut them into pieces. Now that's not very comfortable. It's kind of hard, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know. My hand's been cut from my elbow. We don't do that. These are not, as far as I know, these are not the songs that we're singing back there. What is Jesus doing here? Why in the world is he giving us this image? Why would he describe it like this? What is he thinking? Eugene Peterson's written a book called Run with the Horses. It's about uh, the life of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a pretty remarkable prophet uh, and he spent uh, uh, some of his time addressing some of those followers of God who were really just kind of, they were going to the temple every week, 
From the outside, it looked like they really had it all together. But on the inside and in other parts of their life, it was clear they were not following God at all. There was this great sense of of hypocrisy. I want you to hear uh, John, uh, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 6. I'm getting, or 7. I'm getting older, so I'm going to have to uh, put my glasses on. But here is how Eugene Peterson, I just want you to listen to this description. I don't even have it up there. This is Jeremiah's accusation. You have found a safe place, haven't you? This nice, clean temple. You spend all week out in the world doing what you want to do, taking advantage of others, exploiting the weak, cursing the person who isn't pliable to your plans, and then you repair to this place where everything is in order and protected and right. Do you think you can rob and murder? Have sex with neighborhood wives, tell lies nonstop, worship the local gods and buy every novel religious commodity on the market, and then march into this temple set apart from my worship and say, we're safe, thinking that the place itself gives you a license to go on with all this outrageous sacrilege. Here is what Peterson goes on to say as commentary. He says, the outside is a lot easier to reform than the inside. Going to the right church and saying the right words is a lot easier than working out a life of justice and love among the people you work and live with. Showing up at church once a week and saying a hearty amen is a lot easier than engaging in a life of daily prayer and scripture meditation that develops into concern for poverty and injustice, hunger and We live in a culture where image is everything and substance nothing. We live in a culture where a new beginning is far more attractive than a long follow-through. Images are important. Beginnings are important. But an image without substance is a lie. A beginning without a continuation is a lie. Jeremiah attempted to shock his people into a recognition of this obvious but avoided truth. I bring that up this morning because in many ways I think that what Jeremiah is doing in the Old Testament is exactly what Jesus is trying to do in this New Testament, which is that he is trying to shock them into truth. There are a few things as powerful as self-deception. And we love to lie to ourselves. But what Jesus is saying is, you know the kingdom, you know my grace, you know all of these things, and yet you seem to hear these things, to, quote, do the right things, and yet at the exact same time to simply live the life that you want to live. There has been no change because of the grace that you have experienced. And if there is no change, Jesus said, there will be punishment. You see, to experience the grace of Jesus and then simply rest in that without changing, having it change how you live is, and you know this uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is cheap grace. What does Bonhoeffer say? He says, cheap grace is this. It is the preaching of forgiveness 
without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Scott Hosey says, salvation by grace is a wonderful thing. However, it can lead to lethargy where we say, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we will be forgiven. Or I love how one German philosopher says, I don't know if this was tongue-in-cheek or not, but he says, God likes to forgive. I like to sin. Really, the world is admirably arranged. But this, of course, is not how God understood grace. Grace is a beginning, right? What has Eugene Peterson said? We need those beginnings. However, we also need follow-through. We need a sense of the future where we are allowing Jesus then to actually change us. To look at Scripture and to think anything else is grasping onto cheap grace. This is why Jesus tries to use this provocative language. Why? Because he longs for us to awaken. Now the truth is, we acknowledge this in so many of the other commitments in our lives. Look at marriage and the commitment that we make there. If you get married, there is a vow that is taken where each person acknowledges that they are committing to one another and will sacrifice for one another. To think that one can be married and then continue to live like he or she is single, to be married and to never sacrifice, to be married and never change one's schedule, to be married and never share one's wealth, to never listen, to never practice loyalty, to make one's bed a public invitation, is to make an absolute mockery of marriage. It is to make a mockery of vows. It is to make a mockery of the person to whom you are married. It is to live an absolute lie. It is not cute or funny or no big deal. It is to live a lie. It is to cut into pieces the beauty and joy and sacred nature of marriage. To make a commitment to Jesus in which you receive the most gracious gift of the one who loves and serves and sacrifices for us, and then to take that grace and that commitment and continue to live like those in the kingdom of our world, to never sacrifice for Jesus, to never change your schedule or your priorities, to never become generous, to never pray or listen, to never practice loyalty, to make one's altar a public invitation to any God is to make an absolute mockery of our faith and our commitment. It is to make a mockery of Jesus. It is to live a lie. It is not cute. It is not funny. It is not no big deal. It is to live a lie. It is to cut into pieces beauty and 
joy and sacred nature of our faith and our relationship with Jesus. Now, I realize it may seem harsh, but at some point, what all followers of Jesus have to decide is whether we are merely going to play footsie with our faith or whether or not we are actually going to allow God to change who we are. Will we get to worship whenever we have nothing else on our calendar? Will we give generously, but only after we've taken all those trips and bought all the things that we desire? Will we pray, but only when there is little else to do? Will we live for him only after we have lived for ourselves? Because let's be clear, if we do, then we should not be surprised that when we look back on our life, that what we see is that we have chased after so many gods and so many idols that we are no longer whole. That our lives have been chopped into pieces. It is a stark image. But it is an image, it seems to me, that we in the church, and perhaps especially the church in America, need, must, not ignore. And so this moment, even now, is the moment when the God of grace and love calls us. And he longs for us to hear his voice to make us whole. He desires to serve and love and he does offer us grace freely, but it is not grace that comes without cost. Are we awake enough to hear him or have we so dissected our lives our hearts from our minds, our bodies from our souls because we have grown complacent or because we have chased after so many gods that we have grown numb from the voice of the one who will one day return. It is, as someone has said once again, it is grace that it is free, but it is not grace that comes without great cost. Let us pray. God, your grace is abundant, and for that we give you praise. Your grace is free, and for that we rejoice. And yet, as we say so often, you love us far too much to simply allow us to remain where we are. And so we offer ourselves up to you. Quite honestly, we may have no idea what that even means. But we trust in the one 
will return. We trust in the one who serves us in remarkable ways. We rest in your love, and then we follow you. May we have the courage to do so. Amen.